Welcome to Counterspin, your weekly look behind the headlines. I'm Janine Jackson. This week on Counterspin, international human rights lawyer Craig Mokhyber told Electronic Intifada recently that the International Court of Justice hearings on the legality of Israel's 56-year occupation of Palestinian land is the largest case in history. More than 50 countries are taking part in this, and the U.S. is virtually alone in defending the legality of Israel's occupation. Most states are affirming its illegality and cataloging Israeli war crimes, crimes against humanity, and other gross violations of international law. Every day, the U.S. falls more out of step with the world in its support for Israel's violent assault on Gaza. As Mokhyber said, U.S. vetoes of ceasefires in the U.N. Security Council, after which thousands more were killed, mean the U.S. is directly responsible for those deaths. Complicity is a crime. Many in the U.S. press seem divorced from the idea of U.S. responsibility, and somehow we're seeing more of the opinions of random TV actors than of groups on the ground in Palestine and international human rights and legal bodies. We'll get some update on this unfolding nightmare from author and activist Greg Shupak from the University of Guelph Humber in Toronto and from Trita Parsi, co-founder and executive vice president at the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft. That's coming up this week on Counterspin. Counterspin is brought to you each week by the Media Watch Group Fair. Seven national U.S. unions, along with more than 200 locals, just formed a coalition calling for a ceasefire in Israel's genocidal war on Gaza. Postal workers, flight attendants, teachers, nurses, auto workers, painters, more than 9 million union workers have signed on to the National Labor Network for Ceasefire, calling for an immediate end to violence and the restoration of basic human rights, the release of hostages, and full access for humanitarian aid. We can't stand by in the face of this suffering, said the head of United Electrical Radio and Machine Workers. We cannot bomb our way to peace. So this is on the heels of a ceasefire call by the AFL-CIO, who have a decidedly spotty history in taking the side of humanity in international conflicts in which the U.S. is involved. It's reflective of a growing understanding of the non-marginality of protesting Israel's violent actions in Palestine and dissenting from U.S financial and political support for them. At some point, elite media are going to say this was wrong and everyone saw it. But what are they saying now? If you only can call out horror when it's history, what is journalism good for? Greg Shupak is a media critic, activist, and teacher. He teaches English and media studies at the University of Guelph Humber in Toronto, and he's author of the book The Wrong Story, Palestine, Israel, and the Media from OR Books. He's joining us now by phone. Welcome back to Counterspin, Greg Shupak. Hi, thanks for having me back. Well, as of February 20, the U.S. for the third time has used its veto on the Security Council to kill a resolution 
calling for an immediate ceasefire in what news outlets persist in calling the Israel-Hamas war. We're told the White House has put forward an alternative that asks for a halt in fighting, quote, as soon as practicable, close quote. Well, you know, we know that folks like to say journalism is the first draft of history. And unfortunately, that can be true, you know, even when what you're seeing with your eyes doesn't match with what you're reading in the paper. I still think that a lot of folks are kind of waking up to media criticism right now. But I just want to ask you, in terms of journalism, in coverage of this nightmare, what are you seeing that needs to be called out? What do you think needs to be paid particular attention to? Uh, One thing that comes to mind is that there are a lot of uh, credible organizations based in in Palestine, including in Gaza, that get very little in the way of a platform in U.S. media or Canadian media. Organizations like Palestine Center for Human Rights, PCHR, Al-Haq, and uh, the Al-Mizan Center for Human Rights. These organizations are very well-connected on the ground in Gaza and elsewhere in Palestine in some cases. So I find it, uh, well, at best disappointing that these groups are virtually never mentioned or never cited, I should say, in the American or Canadian media. I think that uh, they provide a lot of very detailed information as to what's happening. And it's one of the problems with the uh, constant framing of what is called the Hamas-run health ministry in Gaza. Uh, The framing what Palestinian health officials say that way is flawed, as we know, because it's used to cast doubt on what's being said because Hamas is a thoroughly demonized organization uh, in this part of the world. So therefore, attaching their name to information is going to make that information sound suspect to a large portion of the audience. One other kind of facet of that is that it's not just the so-called Hamas-run health ministry giving us information about attacks on you know, hospitals and medical workers and schools and refugee camps and so on and so forth. There are these groups that have a really long uh, history of doing vital work and a very strong track record, an internationally recognized track record, and they should be part of the media conversation. But these sources are just not admitted. It's just everything is presented as, well, Hamas said this versus Israel said that. One of the more uh, frustrating motifs throughout the period since October 7th has been to wedge Palestine into the anti-wokeness culture war stuff. Oh boy. Um, yeah. And you've seen, we saw Brett Stevens a couple of weeks ago having a piece called Settler Colonialism, A Guide for the Sincere. Uh, we've seen at least two pieces in the Atlantic quite stridently opposing the, the framing of Palestine as a conflict between colonizer and colonized. And in some ways, most disappointingly, We've seen uh, in the last few days, Lydia Paul Green writing in the New York Times, restoring the past won't liberate Palestine. And so all of these have in common, especially the Atlantic pieces and the Stevens piece, they they rest on this idea of naive, fanatical college students who uh, have these simplistic ideas about politics. 
and is really a way of eliding some very basic uh, fundamental elements of how things have gone to this point in Palestine. So Paul Green mentioned, partially to her credit, I guess, that the vast majority of people who created Israel were not from there. And this is still, I think, treated as like a minor point by her, and it's really absent in the other pieces I'm, I'm mentioning. And, you know, what she says is that talking about Palestine as a uh, conflict between an indigenous population and a colonial population is what she describes as, you know, part of a, quote, larger trend on the left these days, emanating from important and complex theories in the academy, but reflected in crude and reductive forms in the memes and slogans at Palestine protests an increasingly rigid set of ideas about the interloping colonizer and the indigenous colonizer. Wow. So, you know, I mean, it's hard to know what crude and reductive slogans Paul Green has in mind because she doesn't mention any, but the fact that Paul Green and especially Stephen, the, the pieces in the Atlantic, they're all obscuring that at the time of the post-World War One British mandate in Palestine, the population of Palestine was 90% Palestinian. And even when the UN issued its 1947 partition plan, Palestinians owned more than 94% of the land between the, the river and the sea. So, you know, Paul Green and the other commentators I've mentioned, they're wrongly implying that the movement to stop the genocide in Gaza is at some basic level wrong about Israel being a colonial enterprise. And this is really significant because they present this idea of anti-colonial struggle in Palestine as some kind of uh, misguided romanticism that selectively, you know, wants to restore the past. Well, you know, the issue isn't whether the past should somehow be restored, but whether Zionism should continue to be the governing principle across all of historic Palestine. And so these are all just one example of the ways that Israeli violence is legitimized and Palestinian counter-violence is delegitimized, as is the Palestine Solidarity Movement within the United States and Canada and so forth. Because if you obscure the fact that this is a colonial dynamic, then it's much easier to just present what has happened, both in the longer term and since October 7th, as Israel is just a country defending itself. We know, or I assume many of your listeners know, that that is a uh, wildly misguided characterization of it. And it goes back to those decades leading up to the creation of the Israeli state. But this violence that we've seen in recent months is all a, a product of seeking to maintain an ethno state in Palestine, wherein Palestinians remain an oppressed minority within what is now called Israel and stateless occupied peoples in the West Bank and Gaza and, of course, internationally. So, you know, you can't understand a basic hinge point in this uh, war, like the fact that most people in Gaza, 70% of them or thereabouts, are refugees without understanding that they got to be refugees because creating a colonial state in Palestine required expelling 750,000 Palestinians and, and also their descendants. So, you know, it's treated as like in the Times by Paul Green and Stevens as let's uh, explore these trendy academic ideas. But 
you know, this has really real implications for, of course, the people living in Palestine, but also for how the issue is presented and understood and even just factual reporting where you get very little sense of the fact that there is a fundamental asymmetry here and that what we're talking about is a colonial war or perhaps a a, a decolonial or anti-colonial war. I think of Plato's shadows on the cave wall so much that people interpret real events in terms of some sort of narrative and what it means for them. It just blows my mind. And I just want to ask you, finally, you know, journalism should be different. Reporting should be different than telling us a story about the good guys and the bad guys, you know? And I I just wonder what you think responsible journalism would look like at this time. I think that responsible journalism would do more than just present what is unfolded as, you know, at best, Israel says this on the one hand, Hamas says that on the other hand, when I think others have said before, you know, we don't have to present debates like, well, somebody says the sky is blue and somebody says it's purple. Um, We have a lot of sources that can independently make clear what is happening. And those should be relied on more, including the sources I mentioned earlier today, but not only those. That what we're seeing here is a a brutal and, in the words of the ICJ, plausibly genocidal uh, undertaking by Israel to kill what is now, if you include the estimated number of people under the under the rubble in Gaza, at least something in the ballpark of thirty five thousand dead Palestinians in uh, four months or so. So. You know, I think that on the the so-called factual reporting, it's not very difficult, actually, to get a very clear picture of what is going on, even just using a, a person's, one's own iPhone, if you, if you uh, spend a short period of time going to primary sources. But the general public ought not to have to do that. The role of journalism should be to give people a range of perspectives and... Uh, those perspectives ought to be grounded in reliable, credible information. And that's out there, but uh, a lot of uh, our journalists, most of our journalists, seem to not present that in in an unfiltered way, or even in a way that is less heavily filtered, if that's if I want to read mm-hmm. in my yeah. request a little mm-hmm. bit. But uh, that, you know, sort of built into the commercial uh, orientation of the media system that, uh, there are many considerations that have nothing to do with serving the public good by helping provide the populace with the information that uh, we need and uh, a range of possible lenses to think about them. What we see instead is an orientation toward minimizing atrocities carried out by countries like the United States and Canada and their allies, which in the case of Israel is less an ally than an appendage. All right, then. We've been speaking with writer, activist, and teacher Greg Shupak from the University of Guelph-Humber. His book, The Wrong Story, Palestine, Israel, and the Media, is available from OR Books. Thank you so much, Gregory Shupak, for joining us this week on Counterspin. Thanks again for having me. After the attacks of September 11th, 2001, there was, here in New York City, a 
palpable feeling of horror and loss. And it was combined with a sense of dread of what might be to come. There's something of that now. Even as we reel from the toll of death and destruction wrought by Israel and Gaza, we're forced to see that things could still get worse. Will there be a wider war? Is it already happening? And what can we do about it? Trita Parsi is co-founder and executive vice president at the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft. He joins us now by phone. Welcome back to Counterspin, Trita Parsi. Thank you so much for having me again. Well, I would ask you, please, to sort of bring us up to date. It's February 21st when we're recording, and we know that things are changing every minute. But what do you see brewing or already happening regionally as consequence of Israel's assault on Gaza? Of course, please talk about Gaza, but I'm also interested in what you think may be follow-on actions in the region that we should be paying attention to. Well, let me quote, without naming the name, what a diplomat from a regional power told me this last week. This is a country that is a very close ally of the United States. His point was that the region is turning so much against the United States that in five years, he envisions that the Middle East will be far more connected with Russia and China and that those two countries will have far more influence in the region than the United States will because what the Biden administration is doing in Gaza in terms of allowing and enabling this horrible slaughter and massacre that is taking place there. And this is from a diplomat from a country that doesn't want to see the region move in that direction. There's a sense of frustration that everything they're doing to try to compel the U.S. to take a more balanced approach is failing. And the ultimate cost of that is not only paid for by the people in Gaza and the peoples of the region, but ultimately for U.S. interest itself, because the region as a whole is trying against the United States. And I think there's another aspect here that is also important to keep in mind. Another observer pointed out that in many ways, this is worse than what happened during the Iraq war. I mean, first of all, the, the pace of killing and the proportion of children and women, of course, is far greater than it was in Iraq. But it's also that back to the invasion of Iraq, France and Germany stood up against the United States, put up significant opposition, and was very clear they were not on board. And that meant that that invasion did not take on an Huntingtonian clash of civilization dimension. It was the neocons and their neo-imperialist project rather than that clash of uh, civilization. This time around, Europe has taken an embarrassing position, particularly in the UK. And as a result, this may end up adopting more of that Huntingtonian dimension. Uh, which will then not only have a very negative effect ultimately for the U.S.'s relationship in the region, but also for Europe's. Some countries are standing out, Ireland, Spain, Belgium, to a certain extent, Portugal as well. And many of the Europeans, of course, with the exception of the U.K., have voted in favor of these fires. But in terms of actually putting pressure on the United States, they're hardly doing the same. Well, I'm from Delaware, uh, so I've known about Joe Biden for a while. But for many people, he is this avuncular, self-effacing guy, you know, who played water guns with the press corps on his lawn as vice president. 
But he seems to be showing that he's not just tolerant of war or inept at extricating from it. He seems to believe in it, you know? So as as U.S. citizens engaging with the president that we have, you know, I, 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 I you know, that's the question. Blah. You know, this is this is one of the things that is so perplexing to people that this conflict has arisen an ideological side of Biden that always been there, but it's never been this prominent and this decisive. And this is very important because he does not have his administration fully with him. There's been a lot of reports about the dissent that exists in the White House, at the State Department and elsewhere in the U.S. government. There's been resignations. There's been significant uh, dissent cables. There's been staffers at the White House who hold vigil in favor of a ceasefire outside the White House in the evenings. Letters signed by White House interns against the very president. They are interning for. This is unprecedented. But there's actually additional opposition at even higher levels that has not been reported in the press yet, uh, which, which may not necessarily come from the same standpoint. It's not necessarily because of the sympathy of the Palestinians, but it's because of recognition of the significant costs this will have for Biden, for anyone associated with Biden, for the re-election campaign prospects of, of uh, Biden. Etc. So there's more to it than what we have seen in the press. Yet so far, we have seen nothing from Biden in which he's willing to budge. And I think it's important to note one thing. Biden himself and the Democrats have defined this election against what most likely will be Trump as a question about the survival of American democracy. If that is the case, then one truly has to ask oneself, what is and the slaughter of Palestinians in Gaza that is so important to the U.S. that Biden is not only willing to risk escalation in the region and getting dragged into another war, he's not only willing to risk his own re-election, we've seen what's happening in Michigan and many other states, but he's ascended, apparently, based on his own statements, also willing to risk American democracy. This does not check out. Right, right. Well, I'm, you know, I'm not a silver lining type, but I do see people waking up every day, you know, not not becoming cynical, but becoming critical, very critical, just not accepting what's put on their plate every morning by, you know, the Times or the Post and, and asking questions and, and reading widely and internationally, you know. So I just, I guess finally, I just want to ask you, where do you find hope? Where do you see suggestions or ways to move forward? I think it's an important question because it is important in these very, very otherwise dark times to try to identify where potential hope may exist. I find hope in the fact that I know that it's not just Muslim or Arab Americans that are objecting to this. If you're a young person today, you're not seeing the same state that Biden saw when he was young, when he thought he perceived Israel to be the underdog, Mm -hmm. etc., Mm-hmm. You're seeing a country that is massacring and based on the videos of their own uh, soldiers seems to take great joy uh, in the massacres that are taking place. And, and that's going to have a profound and long-standing impact on the manner in which the United States will be approaching Israel issues and the extent to which it will be willing to pay such a high cost to protect and provide Israel with political and diplomatic immunity. And it's not clear to me 
that this generation will be able to turn the ship, so to speak, in time, given the pace that Biden is now undermining the U.S.'s goal. I think that many folks are not used to not thinking of the United States as the shining city on a hill and that we are coming for a reckoning in which we need to understand uh, the U.S.'s place as a country in the world. And we'll be looking for journalists to help us situate that and do that. And I know I already said finally, but finally, finally, what would you look for from news media uh, in the present moment? Oh, where to begin on yeah, that? Yeah, really. <laughs> uh, this is, it's been an absolute disgrace how this has been covered in most places. Let me just give you one example on a, on a detail that is nevertheless crucial. The way the activities of the Houthis was being reported, as you know, they've been attacking ships in the Red Sea, uh, which has cost the Israelis quite a lot. It's, it's a tactic that they have been using that in and of itself actually is oftentimes violating international law. But most of the reporting in the beginning did not even mention that the demand that the Houthis had was a ceasefire. So it was left unstated what they were doing this for, leaving the readers with the impression that they're just doing it because they're crazy. Right. And also leaving them the impression, in fact, sometimes in the news media, it was stated as such, that Biden felt that his hands were tied and as a result, he needed female reaction. No mention that they actually had a demand. That demand was a ceasefire. It's not that the newspapers need to endorse that demand, but they need to inform the public that that is why they're doing it, which then can have an impact on how the public itself makes up its mind as to whether it's worth going to war over this issue as to actually is a potential other way. Particularly mindful of the fact of another piece of information that took the media a very long time to report, which is that during the six days in which there was a ceasefire in November of last year, there were no attacks by Iraqi militias against the United States. And there was only one attack by Houthi by my account. So there was a dramatic reduction of attacks during the ceasefire. So that we know that there are strong data points suggesting that a ceasefire would also lead to a cessation of the Houthi attacks of the Iraqi militia. How can they deprive the American public from such crucial information at a moment when the United States government is weighing whether to take military action? We've been speaking with Frida Parsi of the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft. You can find their work online at responsiblestatecraft.org. Trita Parsi, thank you so much uh, for joining us this week on Counterspin. My pleasure. Thank you so much. And that's it for Counterspin for this week. Counterspin is produced by FAIR, the National Media Watch Group based in New York. If you'd like more information about FAIR, you can check out our website, fair.org. The show is engineered by Alex Noyes. I'm Janine Jackson. Thank you for listening to Counterspin. Counterspin.